0: Okay, so we're carrying on this morning with our journey through the book of Revelation. Uh, one of the most fascinating books probably ever written. Uh, a lot has been written about this book itself. And a lot of people have heard of it. Sadly, very few people have really read it. And those that have read it often end up walking away confused. But it's not intended to confuse. The opening verse it says that God has given this book so that his servants would understand the things that are going to come to pass. And that's the whole purpose it's given. And so we're going to pick up this morning as we go through trying to understand and see uh, what's there. As we said before, there's 404 verses in this book, but there's over 800 allusions or references back to the Old Testament. So if you know the Old Testament, actually the book of Revelation will make a lot of sense. It's kind of a a lock and a key situation. Once you understand the things in the Old Testament, then all of a sudden these things we read in the book of Revelation make sense as well. So, But before we turn to God's word, let's just bow our hearts and pray. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray this morning, Lord, that you would speak to us through it. Lord, your word is not just to provide information for us, but Lord, is to change us. Lord, your word says we should be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Father, we recognize that when we are born again, when we become a Christian, you put a new heart within us. But Lord, our minds need to be transformed. Lord, our minds have been victims to so much of the, the world's ideas, of worldly philosophy and thoughts. And Lord, some of those things are okay, but Lord, some of those things can be very harmful and damaging. And so, Lord, we need to get our head into your words, to understand what our Creator has said. And so, Lord, this morning, please, just speak to us, we pray. Let's take my words, and Lord, just help me to speak only that which you would have, that we would be encouraged and edified together. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so we're in chapter 2 of Revelation, um, and we're looking at these seven churches so we have these churches that are in what we call modern-day Turkey, uh, the area of kind of Galatia or Asia Minor, as it was also known, um, and all these kind of churches in this area. And this is where we're, we're journeying at the moment and looking at the letters that Jesus himself wrote to these churches. Now, a lot of people are aware that Paul wrote letters and John wrote letters and so on, but a lot of people forget that we have these seven letters that Jesus himself wrote and had sent to these churches. Now we looked last time at the fact that there's a local application. These were real churches that existed at the end of the first century. And so these letters were written to them. But there's also a very personal application for anybody who reads these letters. Because we can see that he who has an ear, let him hear. So it's for us, it's individual. But there's also a a, a message in here for all churches of all time. So not just the, the church that was the recipient of the particular letter... But all the churches. Because we're told, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So the Holy Spirit is speaking to all churches through each of these letters. And then as we looked at very much in detail last time, there's a prophetic element to this. Where these churches lay out in advance over 2,000 years, or almost 2,000 years should I say, of church history. In advance, God revealed in his word what was going to happen with the church. And as we saw last time, It's an exact mirror of what happened with the nation of Israel. And the parallels are breathtaking when you see God's design and control on history. Now, we shouldn't be surprised because in the first verse we're told that the words of this book are words of prophecy. Prophecy, again, let me just explain, is not a prediction. We predict the weather and tomorrow we can predict it will probably be raining and cold. That's what it does in this country. We're fairly safe. A prediction is an educated guess that we make. The Bible doesn't deal in prediction, it deals in prophecy. Prophecy is the future revealed before we get there. Now the only way that can happen is if somebody is outside of time and that they can see the future. And that's exactly what God is. The Bible says in the book of Isaiah that God inhabits eternity. God is outside of time. And so God has revealed in his word the things that are going to happen. And again, one of the reasons we have these things is so that we would have comfort, so that we don't worry and and fear like the rest of the world when we start to see all these problems springing up around us. Now, just to give you a quick overview, each of the seven letters has a very, very similar structure and outline. Clearly, this is a design. There's some feature of Jesus, the glorified Jesus, that we saw in chapter one, that is echoed at the beginning of each of the letters. So each church is given a different feature or characteristic of Jesus uh, that's applicable to that church. We also find that the introduction begins with this statement, I know thy works, or something along those lines. Jesus starts by saying, I know. And then he gives a word of commendation and encouragement for what the church is doing well and the occasions where that's applicable. But then that's followed by a word of condemnation or rebuke. You see, churches don't always get it right. We are supposed to be representatives of Jesus. We're supposed to be ambassadors. But sadly, we don't always get it right. And often the world looks at the church and they draw their conclusion about what the church is like from Christians. And sadly, we let God down, we let Jesus down because we don't always represent Jesus as he is. We should. And that's why we see here this rebuke. There's a challenge to, to change in each of these letters. Now, having said that, there are a couple of exceptions to note. There's no word of rebuke to the church at Smyrna or the church of Philadelphia. Even though they may have thought there were things that were not right in their midst, or there was problems, when God looks at them, he doesn't give any rebuke to either of those two churches. Smyrna, as we we're going to see this morning, was, if you like, the martyr church. They were faithful unto death. Philadelphia is the missionary church, in in a sense the church that that proclaimed God's word. They were faithful. It's a church of brotherly love. So both those churches, there's only positive things said. But in contrast, there's nothing good said about the church at Sardis, which seemingly is a dead church, or Laodicea, which is the last one of the seven, which is seemingly the apostate church. And we'll look as we go through more in detail at all of these. Each letter is going to end with this call to understand. And then also a promise to the overcomers. The call to understand really, is quite simply this, that he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says, and then we're told. A phrase is only used in connection with believers, because speaking of those that have ears to hear, it's not just saying if you've got an ear, this is for you, because we all have ears, but those who've got an ear actually Listen. You know, it's so important that we understand. It's not just about hearing words. It's not just about accumulating knowledge, but understanding the import behind these things. And really, it's only a Holy Spiritful believer that is able to understand the things of God. So let's have a look. We're going to be looking first of all at the Church of Ephesus. These are the seven churches on this southwest coast of what is today Turkey, Asia Minor in that time. And this church here, Ephesus, is the church we're going to start by looking at. Now, Ephesus, is, by some commentators, referred to as the loveless church, for the reasons you're going to see in a moment. But ironically, the name Ephesus means darling or desired. It has the connotation of the love of espousal. You know, when two people get engaged, there's that love, there's that excitement, there's that joy, that anticipation. Well, that's all wrapped up in this name of Ephesus, and yet we find this church that has moved away from that love. Just a little bit of history for you. Ephesus itself was founded around about 2000 BC, so 2000 years before Jesus, uh, by the Hittites. That makes it around about the time of Abraham. So Abraham down in Ur of the Chaldees and then leaving to come up to the land of Canaan, the land that we now know today as Israel. But at the same time, the Hittites were in the area of Turkey and they had founded this city. It became the capital of Asia Minor. It's a very, very important, prominent city with a population of somewhere around about 200,000 people. And at that time, that was quite a, a large population. It was both the religious and the commercial centre of the whole area, and it influenced both the East and West of Asia and Europe. It was very key because of the fact it was on the coast as well. It was seen as like a gateway from Rome to Asia in the East. It was also a major seaport, as I said, being on the coast you know, it's, there's a lot of parallels we could draw probably with Portsmouth or places around here. I mean, Portsmouth has been a famous seaport for for years. And lots of trade passes through and so on. And, well, Ephesus was no different. But the road to the harbour, you can see a kind of a picture there, was very, very wide. It had these very impressive big marble columns and shops and trading stalls and all sorts of things. It was also a, a place of resorts is where Roman emperors came for rest and relaxation because it was such a, a nice environment. The city was constructed almost entirely of white marble. By all accounts it was a very very beautiful place. Now just away from the harbour there's this huge outdoor theatre. You can see this theatre cut into the hillside, this amphitheatre. They could see about twenty thousand people. It's another picture of this amphitheatre very, very high up and obviously amphitheatres were very common in Roman times. For all sorts of things they used to do and etc. Now, there was also, at Ephesus, a temple to Diana, a pagan goddess. It's one of the wonders of the ancient world. It was the largest Greek temple that was ever constructed. It was four times larger than a Parthenon in Athens. Now, if anybody's been to Athens, been to Greece, you've seen the Parthenon, it's very, very impressive. But the, this... Um, temple Diana in Ephesus was four times larger than that. There were over a 100 external columns, all about 56 feet in height. And 36 of those were hand-carved. The doors were of cypress wood, which was expensive at that time, and had been brought in. The columns and the walls were made of marble. There was a staircase that apparently was carved out of one vine that had been brought from Cyprus. The temple to Diana that we're looking at, uh, representation, a picture of there, was finally destroyed by the Goths in about 256 AD, which is a shame because it would have been such a wonderful place to see had they left it standing But so many of these great buildings got destroyed. But the temple served as a bank. It was also a depository of vast sums of money because of that. And Ephesus was well known for art and the galleries it had. It displayed various masterpieces from various people at the time, including a painting by Alexander the Great, which was apparently held there. Now, Diana was supposed to be the daughter of Zeus, and the sister of Apollo, according to Greek mythology. Um, But she's the same goddess that's worshipped by other cultures, by different names, Ashtaroth being one of them. Now, if you remember when we are going through the book of Kings, the name Ashtaroth kept appearing as the Israel were ending up going or following these false deities, these false gods. So, this incredible temple. So, you just get an idea of this kind of place. And we'll look at what Jesus says in a moment. But in the midst of all of this excess comes the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul spends about two and a half years there. He came on his third missionary journey. A church had been planted, and this church is really thriving and growing. So much so that down by the water stage, there was four columns erected, and on each of the columns, there was a cross, a symbol of a cross, and the name on each column of the the, um, the gospel writers, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Such was the influence of Christianity on this city. Now, apparently... Most of those columns have now been destroyed. There's one that remains, and you can still see the, the cross on that column that's still left. So for two years, the word of God through Paul went out from the school of Tyrannus, this school that was there, place of education. And Paul just made this his base. Paul seemingly the first pastor of this church, later to be taken over by Timothy. And then eventually John the Apostle, who was writing the book of Revelation, ends up being pastor of this church. Paul in 1 Corinthians 16 verse 9 wrote of this experience he had while he was there. He says, For a great door and effectual is open unto me, and there are many adversaries. But we go on to find that actually this church became so influential that from here, the whole of Asia got to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let's jump into the the text now. We've got a background, that's the place historically, let's see what Jesus had to say to them. He said, unto the angel of the church of Ephesus writes, these things is he that holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks in the midst of the seven golden candlesticks. Now, having read chapter 1, which we've already done, we've been given the explanation of what these things mean. So to the angel of the church, we're referring to the pastor of the church of Ephesus. Again, that church being the love of espousal. We said the word in Greek for angel is angelos, it just simply means messenger. It doesn't necessarily mean an angelic being. These are written to the pastors of the churches. And notice that these pastors are the seven, referred to as the seven stars. They're held in Jesus' right hand. Now, just to remind again, we just we covered this a little last week, but just in passing to say that Jesus has given pastors to serve the church. Ephesians 4 verse 11 tells us that. 1 Peter five three says that they're not to be lords, or literally the word in, in the Greek, you see the word there, ketokurio, uh, or something along those lines. It just means to exercise dominion. So pastors aren't there to be dictators or to rule or anything like that. That's not the way it is in the Christian church. We're all one body working together. We have different roles and different functions. But the pastors are to be, the Greek word is poimen literally shepherds. that tend and feed the sheep. That's the job that they've been given. Pastors and teachers, though, were told will receive a stricter judgment because of the influence that they have over people. A lot of people will listen to their pastors. Now, I love Chuck Nisler because of his continued insistence that you don't trust him, but you go back and check scripture. And I would say the same. Don't ever take anything I say. Always go back to the Bible. Because it's not about my opinion or what I think. It's about what the Bible says. That is the basis. That is the foundation. And if we all use the Bible as our basis and foundation, we all come to a unity of the faith. If we start going by people's ideas, and throughout the history of the church, there's lots of people that have been very sincere, but through their ministry, people have become followers of them. There's many names that are around in church history of people that were supposedly others would follow. And it's about following Jesus. It's not about following a man or a particular mindset or teaching. And one of the reasons we find this warning is given, back in Jeremiah 23, verse 1, in Israel, God speaks, says, Woe be unto the pastors that destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. You see, God has given this role of pastor, and of course, within the church, it's different to what it was in Israel, but even at that time, there were people that God had raised up to be shepherds for the people, to look after them, to guide, to teach, to feed them. And at this time, God was saying that there were pastors that were actually destroying. Through the things they were saying, through their lifestyles. And they were scattering the sheep. And God says, of my pasture. See, that's the thing. it's not You're not my congregation. You belong to the Lord. Not me. No pastor owns anybody. Jeremiah 10.21 also says, For the pastors to become brutish. Literally, it means worldly. And have not sought the Lord; therefore they shall not prosper, and all their flocks shall be scattered. God speaks very clearly about these things. And yet at the same time, there's a wonderful promise that's given in Jeremiah chapter 3 verse 15. It says, and I will give you pastors according to my heart, which shall feed you with knowledge and understanding. God speaking of his heritage of his people, and I think speaking clearly of the Jews in the context, but I think also looking forward to that which would come with the church that God would raise up pastors that would be according to his heart, that would feed the people with knowledge and understanding. And so now this letter, given to the pastors of the church for their congregation, for that to, to share with those that worshipped and served together. And notice again, in his right hand, John Wildwood in his great commentary on the book of Revelation says this, Christ holds the seven messengers of these churches in his right hand, a place of sovereign protection as well as divine authority over them. You see, pastors aren't free to do what they want, they are to serve the Lord. It's the Lord who is called and appointed, and therefore they're answerable directly to him. So there's no free-for-all, no just doing what you want. We're servants. But then we're told that Jesus is the one who walks in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, or golden candlesticks. This is what we saw in chapter 1. And we saw it told there that these seven lampstands, and really the word is better translated as lampstand because it's referring to something which bears light, not something that itself is light. See, a candle itself will burn, but a lampstand is something that holds the light, and that's what believers are to be. We're told that these are the churches, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And we're told that Christ is walking in the midst of the churches. So Jesus just hasn't abandoned the church and gone back to heaven. He's given us his Holy Spirit and through the Holy Spirit, Christ is here in the midst. Jesus said that where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst. Now there's a number of reasons that Jesus walks in the midst of the churches. It's to encourage those that are downhearted. It's to lift those that are fallen. It's to rebuke the proud. And also to prune and cultivate. And we see God doing that often. We see it in our own lives sometimes, but particularly within the church environment. The Lord often does these things. There's a great comment in a book by Alan Redpath where he was uh, talking to a friend and saying, we're having a great revival in our church at the moment. And his friend wrote back and said, well, that's wonderful how many people have been added. And so he returned the reply and said, added? He said, no, we've had some blessed subtractions. You see, revival isn't about numerics. It's not about numbers. It's about what's going on in the heart. We said at the beginning of this year, as we looked as we journey into this year, the privilege we have of growing together as a family. Learning more and more about Jesus each week, about what is going to come, and there's going to be a day when we see Jesus face to face, when we're called up to meet him in the air. What a privilege that we've had that opportunity. We've been put in this kind of classroom. Whereas Holy Spirit is teaching us and helping us to grow and using each other to edify and encourage us. You know, and again, the church used to be this body that does edify and encourage. You know, if you are not sure what your gift or your ministry is, ask God, pray for God to show you. Because I guarantee you, there is something that the Lord would have you do. It doesn't necessarily mean washing the cups up after the service. But it could be. It could simply be praying for other people. Being hospitable. Give be it all sorts of things that we read are gifts that are given and ministries that are of the Holy Spirit. So we can all work and edify each other. Uh, Jesus walks in our midst and we should remember, of course, that it is his church. He paid for it. And then we really get into the, the, the substance. He says, I know thy works and thy labour and thy patience, how thou cannot bear them which are evil. And has tried them which say they are apostles and anon has found them liars. You know, this is speaking of a church that had a real zeal for that which was right and true. And it's speaking here of people in their midst, and we'll talk more in a moment, that were not true. They, they were misrepresenting themselves and certainly seeming to be misrepresenting God. Gail Irwin, a, a Calvary pastor, was uh, talking about church discipline on one occasion. And he said that what we should do as believers is restore the sinner. We should remove the person that causes division and reconcile with the person that we have personal problems with. But he said, sadly, in many churches, it's completely the other way around, and we end up restoring the person that causes division. And we remove the sinner and we never reconcile with the person that we have problems with. You know, Jesus doesn't expect us just to carry on, and, and there's this kind of Strange idea that's really crept in that we should just love regardless. That's not what the Bible teaches. You know, if you've got a tumour in your body, you wouldn't love that tumour. You'd want to get it out because you know that it's bad. Well, evidently, individuals had crept in who were trying to bring their own teaching into this church. You see, it's supposed to those who, you've tried those which say they are apostles and are not. Clearly, some people were coming in, assuming some position of authority, and were trying to teach their own doctrine, their own ideas. But the Ephesian church had withstood this spiritual attack, and we find that, that first verse, I know thy works, thy labor, and thy patience. We'll come back to that in a moment, but really it's laboring to the point of exhaustion. That's what it's saying. And this may well be in part to the encouragement that Paul gave them. Now, if you remember back in the book of Acts, Paul, as he's on his journeys, comes back to Ephesus, and he calls for the leaders of the church, they come to the beach at Miletus, just a few miles away from Ephesus. And Paul says this to him. he says, for I know this, that after my departing shall grievous wolves enter in among you, not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things, to draw away disciples after them. Paul gave this very clear warning. That, you know, it's often the way that Satan cannot bring things down from the outside. He cannot bring the churches down from the outside. So by getting somebody in the inside, it's so much easier. And we, and we see that throughout church history. Paul saying, I know that after my departing, grievous wolves are going to come in. They're not going to spare the flock. So for your own selves, people that you thought were part of you are going to speak perverse things and they're going to draw away people after them. It's interesting. I remember that in Ron Matson's sermon, when he announced that he was going to be leaving this church and moving on, he used this scripture and warned that there would be that danger, and we should always be mindful of these things. Well, the Ephesian church certainly were, and they resisted these things. Now, we can make a list as we go through, and we'll start to do this, of all the things that Jesus commends, the things that Jesus says are good. Firstly, the work, the labor, the patience. Secondly, it's not bearing with those who are evil. Now that can apply on so many levels, of course within a fellowship that's true, but not very even without outside the fellowship, not spending time with those who are ungodly, spending time with those who just care nothing about the things of God, who want to live their own lives their own way, trying to, or trying those who make a false profession some people have a problem with this but actually it's exactly what we're told in scripture you see we are to be fruit inspectors matthew 7 16 to 20 makes that very very clear that we are to look at people's fruit we look at to look at their lives and if there's no fruit we are to question the connection to the root you see we are to judge those inside the church regarding their outward conduct we're told very clearly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, that actually we're not to judge those outside the church. But those inside the church who have made a profession, who have said they're following Jesus, we are to judge them according to their conduct. And if their conduct is unbecoming a servant of Jesus Christ, then we are to act accordingly. Now, we don't know the heart, and we're never told to judge the heart. We're told to leave that. We don't know what's going on in people's hearts, but we can see the outward side of things. And in First Corinthians, we're told in chapter 5 that you know, we're not to tolerate disruptive, abusive individuals, or worldly believers. Because they damage, they hurt a fellowship. You see, in Ephesus, they grasped this. There was a real desire to protect the body from infection. Joe Foch, I know some of you are familiar with Joe Foch, pastor of Calvary Chapel in America, in Philadelphia, this 2, he just simply said, a healthy body heals itself. It has an immune system. The church Ephesus was healthy enough to put out those who would infect. When a person is infecting other people, it's time to put them out. Verse 3 says, and has borne, and has patience for my name's sake, has laboured, and has not fainted. So other things we can add to this list. Having patience in the face of persecution. And then we get to verse 4. Nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee, because thou hast left thy first love. You know, it's great they've had this good report up until this point. They've been strong on doctrine. They've not allowed people in to to start usurping the authority of the the church or to draw people after themselves. But then we get to this nevertheless. And this is always a a bad thing. You know, when you're at school and you, you get this kind of report, or even at work, you're going in for an assessment. And you're told all the good things, and then you're told, but. Well, that's what's going on. And Jesus is giving them that here. That there are some problems, and these are the things he wants to address. Really, the church that was so intent on getting it right had got it wrong. And this is a real danger for every church. But certainly for us. You know, historically, this church has been a church that has loved God's word, has always taught God's word. You know, we're intent on getting it right. But the danger is you can be so intent on doing that. That you take your eyes off the real focus, the the most important thing, which is Jesus himself. You see, really, it's the difference between knowing and doing. You see, Martha, we find in Luke chapter 10, remember about verse 40, she was trying so hard to serve. She was genuinely trying to serve Jesus. And she was rushing around and trying to get the meal ready and trying to do everything else. And she gets really frustrated because Mary's just sitting there at Jesus' feet. You see, but Mary did serve. She was doing the most important thing and putting Jesus first. And the danger for us is that we can get so busy about the service for the king that we actually forget about the king. Jesus isn't looking for people who are very busy. He's looking for people that love him beyond and before everything else. You see, we often have, and we should have, ministries going on in our lives and our midst as a fellowship that we should see those things. But Jesus is before that. In, and really, the ministry is not something that we try to do to please Jesus. A ministry is something that comes out of that relationship. Um, Jay Vernon McGee, some of you may have heard of, is an American Bible teacher. He just made the comment, he was speaking of a, a, a lady, who, it was two ladies, both got into a career, and then a little while afterwards, one of them got married, and they met up with each other, and the first one said to the second, oh, how's the job going? she says, oh, she says, I don't work anymore. And J. Vernon McGee went on to say that that lady used to get up at 6 o'clock every morning. She used to get everything ready for her family. She'd get all the washing done, all the clothes prepared and things ready for school, get the children to school. And she'd come home and she'd have a number of other things that she would do during the day. It was just, just non-stop. And then, of course, in the evening it's getting the children picked up and home and washed and fed and ready for bed and then getting tea ready for her husband and so on. J. Vernon McGee said this woman worked harder now than she'd ever done in her life. But she didn't think of it as work because she loved it. Because not that she loved the work, but she loved that which she was doing. What she was doing because of who she was doing it for. It was for her family. And that's the way she should be with us. You know, we should love Jesus so much that actually we do things without even realizing or thinking about it. You see, everything we do should come out of our relationship with Him. Oswald Chambers makes this comment. He says, "Be careful about one thing only," says our Lord. And that's your relationship to me. Also says, common sense shouts loud and says, that's absurd. I must consider how I'm going to live. I must consider what I'm going to eat and drink. But Jesus says you must not. Beware of allowing the thought that this statement is made by one who does not understand our particular circumstances. Jesus Christ knows our circumstances better than we do. And he says we must not think about these things so as to make them the one concern of our life. Whenever there is competition, be sure that you put your relationship to God first. Another comment of Oswald Chambers, which I love, is if we undertake work for God and get out of touch with Him, the sense of responsibility will be overwhelmingly crushing. But if we roll back on God, that which He's put on us, He takes away the sense of responsibility by bringing in the realization of Himself. Let me just paraphrase that. Because I, I, in my life I've been here, I'm, I'm sure some of you can identify this as well, that you get so busy doing things that suddenly you start to think about the workload. That like is too much. And then all of a sudden you get to the situation that Martha was in, that you're so busy working, you start to look at other people and think, well, they're not doing something and why not? And then you start to become agitated and even possibly bitter. But you see, when you're in a a place where you are loving God and Jesus is first, you serve you don't even notice it. You don't realise what you're doing. God is giving you the strength to do it and it's not a chore, it's not a challenge. It's out of love. Jesus then says to this church, remember therefore from where thou art fallen and repent. Think differently, turn around and do the first works. Get back to where you began or else I will come unto thee quickly and will remove thy candlestick out of his place. You see, again, that candlestick, those lampstands and light bearers. Jesus says, unless you get back to that place where you should have been, your witness, the light that you're shining, will go out. Again and again, is think back to the beginning. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus were removed from your life in this coming week, how different would your week be? How much time would you have back, if you didn't spend any time praying this week, compared to normal? Or if you didn't spend any time reading your Bible, how much more time would you have this week? How different would your week really be if Jesus were totally removed from your week? Sadly, the answer may well be that it wouldn't be all that different. Maybe we wouldn't have a lot of time back from praying because we don't spend a lot of time praying in the first place. Maybe we wouldn't have a lot of time back from reading the Bible because we don't spend much time reading the Bible. Maybe our thoughts wouldn't be that different because normally we're so consumed with life that we don't tend to think about Jesus. Well, if that hits you this morning, this letter's right where you need to be. Jesus is saying, get back to your first love. Get back to Jesus. Jesus has got to be first. And what a joy there is when that is the case. You know, Jesus said he came to give us an abundant life. A life that is overflowing. A life that's just so joyful. You know, you've met Christians, I'm sure, that just have that joy of the Lord about them. That can be really irritating sometimes because you think I know that should be me but I'm not there and you almost feel condemned because of it well don't feel condemned because it's never about your effort Jesus already said that you are clothed in his righteousness we've looked at this already we've talked about this wonderful work of grace we're not talking about that what we're talking about is your personal relationship with Jesus and what's it going to be like now this coming week Turn around and fall in love with Jesus all over again. That's what you need to do. Now there's a a list of things that we can make of the things that Jesus hates. Something that is becoming more important to us than himself. That is number one on the list. If there is anything in your life, your mind, your heart, that is taking more attention, more of your time than Jesus, it needs to be addressed. But then we find another commendation that Jesus says, but this thou hast, despite those problems, and they have to be addressed. This is another good thing, and it's this. That you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Now that word Nicolaitans seems to be an untranslated word. Notice though that Jesus hates it. You don't expect to find those words in the Bible. Even that list, things that Jesus hates. You wouldn't expect to find that kind of list. But this is true, this is what we find in Scripture. But you know, imagine what it would be like if you found that someone was trying to come between you and your husband and your wife, or between you and your children. You know, a relationship that you value so much. Well, Jesus was speaking here about just that. You see, Nicolaitans, it comes from two words, compound words. Nico, which is where the name Nike actually comes from. It means to conquer, which is why they chose that name. And Laetans, which is where we get our word laity, which just means the people. So it's to conquer the people. And seemingly in this... First century, there were people that were trying to set themselves above the congregation. This is what already happened in the pagan churches. That goes all the way back to Babylon. They had an elite priesthood who were above the people. Jesus is here. I hate that. Anybody that would exalt themselves above the people and put themselves, in a sense, in place of Jesus. You see, the Bible says we have just one mediator. Jesus. There's nobody else between you and God. You don't have to go to a priest. You don't have to go and confess. You just go to Jesus. There is no man that is in between. Jesus says he hates those that will try and do that. And the Ephesians clearly hated it so. And just this is a commendation. Interestingly, in this letter we see it's the, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. When we get to the letter to Pergamos, we're going to find there that it becomes the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. It's something that has... More, it's more embedded and entwined in the church there. It's become more of a problem later on. So the second thing we can add to our list of things that Jesus hates is those that exalt themselves above the congregation. And then we have, he that has an ear, well that's you and I, let me hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him that overcomes what I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. So again, let me remind you: this letter is applicable to individual believers and whole churches. You know, for you and I, this letter has real import. Hopefully, this morning there's already that challenge that we've got to get back to Jesus being number one. So, the Holy Spirit is speaking to us as a church. He's speaking to you as individuals. You know, there is a a thing here as well that. To love Jesus properly, it involves worship. One of the reasons we have a time of worship every time we meet together like this is because it's to get our focus on Him. I was in a situation some years ago where we were down at uh, Paul. We'd set up the fellowship down there. And we used to have a half an hour time of worship before the teaching. Or 30, 30, 35 minutes or so. Very much like we do now. And I had an email from one of the people that was coming along saying, oh, you know, we really like the teaching but the worship time is just a bit long. Do you think you could cut it down a bit? Maybe just 10, 15 minutes. And I emailed back and said, I appreciate your comments but the reason we do that is because we need to get our focus on Jesus and you have just spent a week in the world being influenced by worldly ideas, worldly thoughts and it's so important that before we come to God's word we actually start thinking about Jesus. And he graciously received the reply. About six months later, I had a conversation with him after one of the meetings we'd had. He said on that occasion that how much he'd been blessed by the time of worship. He said it was so lovely just to come into God's presence. And it was because he'd grown up in a situation where they'd never had long times of worship. They'd never had that opportunity to come before the throne. And I think it's so important. If we are to put Jesus first, we need to worship him. Now that's not just singing songs. Worship isn't singing. Songs and singing is a great way to worship. And it's something that God has given to allow and facilitate that. Worship is about a lifestyle. It's more than just music and songs. But we need to learn to worship Jesus. Another quote of Oswald Chambers, he says, If we learn to worship Jesus in the trying circumstances, he will change them in two seconds. And so often we go through challenging moments and situations in life. It's about learning to worship him, whatever the cost. Just like we were singing this morning, that song, "And Is Well With My Soul. And the man that wrote that song learned to worship Jesus in the most trying circumstances. Job learned to worship God in those trying circumstances. What is the Spirit saying to you today? Because this is not just a letter that was written to a church 2,000 years ago. This is applicable to you right now. Just one other comment before we move on. The cherubim here, we, we know that they guarded the tree in the Garden of Eden. You remember after the fall, Adam and Eve were cast out, and they put cherubim, two cherubim there, to guard the way to the tree of life. Same tree of life that we're speaking of here. Why? Some people think it was to stop Adam and Eve getting back. Well, you wouldn't need two of these cherubim, two of these mighty angels, to stop Adam and Eve getting back. I believe it was to stop another angel getting back. See, this tree is such an important tree that had Adam and Eve got to this tree, had they eaten ate the fruit of this tree, the promise was eternal life. And that would have been disastrous. Imagine the situation that Adam, in his fallen state, had gone and eaten of this tree. He would have remained in that fallen state for eternity. You see, there had to be death for that new life to come. And God, of course, had made this plan. That's why the way to the tree of life is guarded. I think it wasn't just about Adam and Eve getting back. I think it was about stopping Satan having access to this tree as well. But we read here that there's a promise that for those that overcome, and you know, in Christ Jesus, we can all overcome. Paul says in the book of Romans, we are more than conquerors through Jesus that loved us. And we're going to get to be given of this fruit of this tree. And we find when we get to the end of the book, we'll see this tree mentioned again in the New Jerusalem. Let's just do one more quickly, and then we'll conclude this morning. The book, or the letter to the church at Smyrna. So we notice actually these follow a actual trade route, in a sense, as we're going to go around, so we've now moved up the coast a little bit to Smyrna. Now, Smyrna is often referred to as the persecuted church, for reasons you'll see in a moment. Prophetically, this is taking us from around about 100 AD to about 313 AD, so just before the time that Constantine legalises Christianity. Up until that point, it was forbidden, it was banned, and so on. Smyrna means bitterness or suffering. It's, the word is derived from myrrh, we'll come back to that in a while. But It's about 35 miles north of Ephesus, as you've just seen on the map, but it's on the Aegean Sea on the coast there. Today, also a population of about 200,000, it's known as Izmir, it's still there, the city. The city goes back to about 2000 BC, so again the same time as Ephesus, another Hittite city, but this one was built on the slope of Mount Pagos. Alexander the Great eventually came here, he rebuilt it and made it a beautiful city uh, that had such a reputation in the area. Now about 200 BC, the people of Smyrna became affiliated to Rome and allied with Rome. It's really where the Rome Republic started to form. The Romans called this city the beauty of Asia because of its setting in the hills. Now there was a statue to the Roman goddess, which was located there. And about at 26 AD, they were awarded the honor of having the temple of Emperor Tiberius built there. Now, very much like the bidding for the Olympic Games. You remember that some, some years ago? And it still happens every, you know, four years. Of course there's all this bidding as to who could host the ceremony. Well, similar type of thing was going on, but Smyrna were given the award of having this temple built to Emperor Tiberius. It was a great honor for the city. But eventually, and leading on from that, it became a place of emperor worship. Interesting, so many shadows we see through the Bible of things that are yet to come as well. Because there's going to be another individual who the world will be called to worship We'll look at that more as we carry on our study. But As I said, the city built on the slope of Mount Pagos, it was on top of which, on top of the hill, top of the mountain, was this Acropolis, which led to the name of this city being known as the Crown City, because around this temple, around this Acropolis at the top, there was these flowers, it was very, very ornate, and it looked, as you looked up, a bit like a crown on top of the hill. The city had a number of buildings, beautiful temples, there's loads of temples in and around this area, the Temple of Zeus, of Sibel, or Diana, as is also known. Ashtaroth, another name for this pagan deity, female deity. Uh, the Temple of Aphrodite was there, the Temple of Apollo, the Temple of Asclepius, all in and around this area. Lots of pagan worship going on. Smyrna also had a, another theatre, similar to the one we saw at Ephesus, and also an odium, which was like a music centre. It was regarded as the home of music in that region at the time. And in addition to that, there's was a famous stadium, uh, it was at the stadium that apparently Polycarp, now that may even be a name you've heard from church history, he became the bishop or the, the leader of the church at Smyrna uh, and student of John. So John the Apostle, in a sense, just as Paul took Timothy, John took Polycarp and um, trained him. Well, Polycarp was eventually martyred and burnt alive in about 155 AD. So the people of Smyrna had for some time worshipped these dead emperors. That's something they had been doing. But it wasn't long before they started to worship the living emperors as well, giving them something like godlike status. So emperor worship became enforced, with each citizen being required to obtain a certificate as proof that they'd burnt incense on the altar to Caesar. Imagine that. Imagine the government suddenly knocking on your door saying you have to worship in a particular way, in a particular place, and unless you get a certificate saying that you've done so, you're liable to have your homes confiscated you will be to be imprisoned, or even worse, killed. Well, that was what was happening. And of course, the Christians at that time refused. They wouldn't get into this Caesar worship. They were quite happy to obey the laws, but not this law, because they already had a God that they worshipped. Now, the Jews were exempt from emperor worship. They'd managed to get this agreement. But they saw this as a great way of getting rid of their enemies. And so they stirred up the people against the Christians in Smyrna. Now Tertullian, an early church leader, converted from paganism, he was a lawyer, he famously said that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Now, Polycarp, just to mention, said he was a disciple of John, he'd been pastor of the church. His friends had moved him to a farm just outside the town itself. But that then became known, so they moved him to another location. But then Two young boys had been captured who knew where John had been taken and the Roman soldiers forced these young boys to, to tell the location. And when the Roman soldiers finally arrived at this farm, this second farm where Polycarp was held, Polycarp was asleep when they came there. But God had already revealed, apparently, to Polycarp in a vision that they were coming and he already prepared them a meal. So when they come and knock on the door, he wakes up, he goes, lets them in and sits them down and offers them this food. They were just blown away. And so they agreed to his terms, which is simply that he would go with them, but he just requested that they give him an hour to pray. Well, as it happened, apparently he prayed for two hours for everyone he'd known in his life and no doubt praying for these soldiers as well. And seemingly praying out loud, so they heard everything he was praying. But eventually they took him to the Roman proconsul, who tried to offer Polycarp the chance to escape. He offered him a chance to recant and worship Caesar. But famously, Polycarp said this, he said, these 86 years I have followed Jesus And he has done me no wrong. I cannot deny him now. So they told him that if he didn't worship Caesar, he was going to be thrown to the beast. But by the time of the day they got there, the games had finished. It was too late. So instead they made a bonfire and put Polycarp in the middle of it. They tried to light the flames. But for some reason the flames were seemingly avoiding him. So in desperation, a Roman soldier lunged forward and stabbed Polycarp with the sword. And Polycarp died as a martyr. This was this church, this was what was going on at this time. Tertullian recalls that the church became the scapegoat if anything went wrong. He says this, If the Tiber River, that was the river in Rome, if the Tiber River overflows its banks, or if the Nile, in Egypt, has remained in its bed, if the skies become still, or if the earth in commotion, if death has made its devastations, or famine its afflictions, the cry of Rome is always, this is the fault of the Christians. It's a little bit like today, isn't it? A couple of years ago, the American Convention for World Peace stated this. The greatest roadblock to world peace is the fundamental Christians. That's us. Apparently we're the greatest roadblock to peace. And that's not the first time, and it's not the last time that's going to be said. You know, a lot of people start talking about fundamentalists. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with a fundamentalist. A maths teacher is a the fundamentalist. They stick to the Fundamentals. You know, they know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. If somebody comes along and says, could it equal 5 please? They said no, because it equals 4. They're a fundamentalist. A football referee is a fundamentalist. They stick to the rules of the game. They stick to the fundamentals. There is nothing wrong being a fundamentalist. The problem is, what are the fundamentals? Now as we know, we live in a world where there are people that have some very twisted and distorted fundamentals. For us as Christians, our fundamentals are the Bible. That's where it starts, that's where it ends. We stick with the Bible. Bible says it, that settles it, I believe it. But the world struggles with that. The world struggles with the fact that the Bible says that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And they say, if we teach that to our children, it's child abuse. This This has been said. Really? That's abusing my children, to tell them that God created everything. When we go out and we look at a world that is so complex, so wonderful, when you look at a flower... You know, if somebody were to try and make a rose, where would you start? What would you use to build it? I mean, with all the science and the knowledge we have, how long would it take you to go and make a flower? And yet, they're all around us. We see desire everywhere. You see, and the world would tell me that I'm wrong for telling my children that God is the creator and that evolution is... Untrue. Because apparently we mustn't move away from their fundamentals. And yet, the Bible says that everything reproduces after its kind. So i told my children, go have a look. Go look around the world. What do you find? Everything reproducing after its kind. Can you find any example anywhere of something that reproduces something other than itself? No. Never, ever in the history of the world everything reproduces after its kind. What does Darwin say? Darwin says things reproduce something other than themselves. Can we find any example of that? No. Well, I know which one I'll stick with, thank you very much. And I know which one is child abuse, which one's brainwashing. It's teaching children that there is no accountability, that there is no law, that actually you're free to do what you want because you're a product of evolution and actually it's survival of the fittest. It's the root of racism. The idea that Whites are better than blacks. Where did that come from? It doesn't come from the Bible. The Bible says that God has made of one blood all men that dwell on the earth. That's not what Darwin said. Darwin was a real racist. If you look at some of the comments he made. If you look at Hitler, he used evolution to justify what he did. And yet once again, getting back on track, they'll still blame the Christians. They'll blame those that have got such a simple faith, based in God's word, that has never changed. Well, that was going on at Smyrna. And the Christians here were dying for it. The name Smyrna comes from the same root as myrrh, as I said earlier. It gives a sweet smell when it's crushed and it's used for embalming. And what a sweet smell it must have been for the Lord as his servants chose him, even at the cost of their lives. You know, it's been said that when you crush a lemon, you get lemon juice. Apple apple juice. So when you crush a Christian, you should get Christ. If Christ is in you, if you're living by faith, it doesn't matter what the world does to the exterior, because inside, you'll never be broken. Saeed's a testimony to this, isn't he? Three and a half years in prison, being beaten, abused, and never gave up on his Saviour. He never gave up on Jesus. And to the angel of the church of to write, these things is the first and the last which was dead and is alive. Now what a great attribute of Jesus to share with this church, the first and the last, simply being the reminder to them that Jesus is before everything, he's after everything. It's a reminder that he's overcome death. Even though they knew that they might face death, Jesus would be with them through it. According to Fox's book of Martyrs, five million believers died for Christ during this period of time. Now that may not sound a huge amount in our ears, it is a huge amount. Of course, being you know, a more Believers died in the last century than at any time in the history of the church. Again, I know thy works and tribulation. See, Jesus doesn't promise to deliver us from trials, but he's in the midst of them. And he says, I know. Joe Fosch recalls a situation with a lady at his church whose husband had been diagnosed uh, with cancer. And so the church did everything they could. They rallied around. They tried to help, but the, the husband wasn't a believer. But shortly after, seeing this incredible love shown by these Christians that were coming to the house and were doing everything they could to help, this man gave his life to the Lord. But then he died. But at least he's gone to glory. About a year after that, there was another lady in Joe Fosh's church who's also had a similar situation. Her husband was diagnosed with cancer and then died. And Joe said he was at the house trying to talk to this lady, trying to console her, and he said he just got to that stage, he just didn't know what to say. And he said at that moment, that other lady, whose husbands had died the year before, walked in. And he said that she just walked up to this other lady, put her arms around her, and just said, I know. But Jesus here says, I know. Jesus has been there, he understands the suffering, and the tribulation, the trials we experience. He knows. There's a great song by a Christian artist called Scott Wesley Brown. Simply called "When Answers Aren't Enough," there is Jesus. Yeah, so many times it's true. Answers aren't sufficient. Back in John chapter 11, verse 35, we read one of the shortest verses in the Bible. Jesus wept. Was at the death of Lazarus. He understands. But in John seventeen thirty three, Jesus said there, In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. The word poverty that's here, well, their treasure was in heaven. It won't decay, it's awaiting them, and they knew it. There's two Greek words for poverty, the one used here denotes abject poverty. they lost everything, their jobs, their homes, family members, all because they wouldn't bow the knee to Caesar. And then we're told that I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Now, there's a couple of options to this verse and commentators are are not sure. Both of them, interestingly, have real import. Firstly, it could be referring to Jews in a biological sense. Back in Luke 3, verse 8, we were told there that not everyone is a Jew who is a descendant of Abraham. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. John the Baptist speaking. So it may be that this people, this group, that are saying that they were Jews and are not, it could be referring to those who were simply saying, well, I'm a Jew, I'm safe, I'm righteous. But actually they totally missed the whole point of that which it meant to be a Jew and someone who was privileged and following God. That's one option. The other option is that this is in reference to what is sometimes referred to as replacement theology you know, in a broad sense. But really speaking of those who reject Israel's claim for the blessings of God and say that those blessings should fall upon them. Now that also incidentally includes Islam. Islam believe, and I've got some Muslim friends at work I speak to frequently, and they say that they believe that Israel were God's chosen people but they rejected God, they rejected the blessings, and therefore God has kicked them out of the land, and that's it, no longer will they ever have those blessings. And they believe the blessings have come upon them. Well, it's the same with a lot of the Protestant church. They believe that Israel are no longer the recipients of those blessings, and all the prophecies and promises about Israel returning to their land, well, they ignore those. Why is it then that, if that's the case, this is referred to as blasphemy. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not. Well, what is blasphemy? You see, the Lord is very jealous of his name, very jealous of his reputation. Blasphemy is simply the act of cursing or slandering, reviling or showing contempt or lack of reverence for God. I think the reason that replacement theology is the idea that people can receive the, the blessing that was promised to the Jews, saying that well, we, we are the Jews, effectively. We're the, the new Israel. That's a ch- phrase that's banded around. It's a slander against the nature of God because it makes him be a liar because there's unconditional promises in his word to Israel. Well, God says, Fear not. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison and you may be tried and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be faithful unto death and I will give you the crown of life. He that is near to hear, let me hear what the Spirit says unto the churches. He that overcomes should not be heard of the second death. Firstly, I just want to point out that this is prophetic. It's speaking of things that would come upon them. Now again, we mentioned last week how much this is looking at various stages of history of the church. And this promise is given to this church. It's not mentioned to the church at Ephesus or to the other churches. And yet, if it was purely a these letters for that time only... Well, surely this would be applicable to all of them, because they were all about to go through these things. But this specific church, that second church age, as I said, from about 100 AD up to about 313 AD, that period of time, we saw 10 different Roman emperors, all of which persecuted the church. And some commentators believe that's the reference we have to these 10 days here. But this church were faithful. And they're promised the crown of life. You know, there's a number of promises in the Bible of things that we receive, but the crown of life is one that is given. At the second coming, we'll see Jesus returning, wearing many crowns. We sing a song. Crown him with many crowns. When we get to Revelation 4, we'll look at where that actually comes from. But again, here, let me hear what the Spirit says to the church. is really the challenge I think from this letter is, how serious are you about your faith? Are you prepared to give up everything for Jesus? You know, these people loved not their lives unto death. They weren't bothered about this world. The most important thing to them was their faithfulness to Jesus. And it really goes back to the church of Ephesus. If this morning you've lost that first love, if Jesus is no longer first in your life, you need to fall in love with him all over again. Let's bow our hearts. Heavenly Father, we just pray this morning that you would speak to us through your word. Challenge us, I pray. And Father, may this week be radically different than last. May we spend more time with Jesus this week than we did last. May we want to spend time. May we pray. Not just because we need things, but Lord, because we want to talk with Jesus. Just as a couple in love would want to spend time together and to talk together. And Lord, may we have that kind of relationship with Jesus where we want to be in his presence may we find time this week to worship him either through song or just through reading your word through psalms or through whichever way Lord it is amazing that the Jesus who we saw in chapter 1 the one who is coming to judge this world has called us friends that we've been given this position this opportunity. So Lord help us to understand what we've got and to love Jesus for everything we have. Lord impress these things upon our hearts now we ask in Jesus name. Amen.